This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Good morning. I'm Jim. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. I... Hey, Denise and I are celebrating our one-year anniversary being here at Crossroads. Very cool. When uh, we first started this, uh, this journey of coming together and uh, kind of reforming and reshaping what the church would look like and then began working on the, uh, on, on the building, uh, there was a question that came up, how to really do it. Do I have uh, my... There it is. Okay. So... Last week, we suggested to you, Pastor Mike did, that uh, we could think of our, our lives, especially our spiritual condition, to be kind of a fixer-upper, just like our, our Montgomeryville uh, buildings are a fixer-upper at this point as we kind of reshape things. But the question is then, uh, you got a project, we know it's important, um, Pastor Mike related to that and that dynamic process that we're all going through of changing and being reshaped and, re- and transformed by God. But the question still raises, like in any project, uh, who's really in charge? Who decides what needs to be done and how we'll do it? Now, we considered a couple different things when we first sat down to envision this, Pastor Mike and I. And uh, we we thought maybe between the two of us, we could make a couple sketches and kind of lay out the plan. And we could just go forward with that. And we realized pretty quickly that uh, we didn't have the competence to do that. We needed somebody else to kind of come in and show us the way. So we talked to some people, got some recommendations, and eventually called in four experts, architects, a couple of whom were also civil engineers, to come in, look at the buildings, and tell us what kind of shape it's in, what can we do with this, kind of listen to us and what our dreams might be for the development of the building. And they kind of said, yeah, yeah, the building's in pretty good shape, it's got good bones, we could do this, we could do that. And then it came to the point where they said, you need a master plan. You need to have somebody lay out for you exactly what it is now, where you're going to go in phase one, two, two B, three, and all that. So I said, great, great. Can you do it? He said, sure. It's going to cost money, though. So so right now, we don't have the master plan. We have it in concept, but we don't have it down on paper. So we needed somebody to come in and be the master planner. We still do. And I guess the question I'm asking is, uh, who kind of comes in to perform that function for us as a church and for each of us as individuals. So I'd like to take you to a couple passages this morning where I think we can kind of relate to who that might be that can come in, who's qualified to do that kind of work. First one passage I want to take you to is Revelation chapter 1. For those of you that are looking in your Bibles, the ones under the racks or on your own, uh, it's the very last book of the Bible right before the concordances and maps and all that, if you have those. But in Revelation chapter 1, this is uh, John, the apostle, the one who followed Jesus along with the other 11 through those years on earth. And now later in life, uh, he's been exiled to a place called the island of Patmos. And he's there for his testimony and his strong Christian leadership. He's been kind of placed in exile, but he still wants to keep in touch with the churches. And while he's there, it says he was... On the Lord's Day, he was in the spirit 
and he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. And the loud voice says, write on a scroll what you see and send it, that should be to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Yeah, so first of all, let's just clear the air here a little bit, because I know a lot of you know where Philadelphia is. It's a big city about 45 minutes from here. Smyrna, I think that's where uh, Heat of the Night took place with Sidney Poitier, you know. But that's not these places. So just, just to clear it up, I, I, I drew this map for you. The seven churches were in seven cities in the place that back then was called Asia Minor. Today we kind of call that modern-day Turkey, the western part of Turkey. And there were these, this cluster of seven churches. And you can see where Patmos is out there just off the coast. So apparently he knew about these churches, had some contact with them, and the Lord says, look, I want you to send letters to these seven churches. And just, this is my evaluation. I have looked over these churches. I know what's going on there, and I want them to get some instruction from me. I'm not sure why these seven churches were picked. There's a lot of theories on why these. They are kind of all clustered together. In fact, if you look, if you start with Ephesus and kind of flow around clockwise, he kind of lists them in order of the way they are. There are just seven churches that back in that day, even though they were kind of close together, each one was facing different challenges, different circumstances and situations in their church life, different pressures. Some of them were doing better at ministry than others. And I guess it's because these seven churches, of all the other churches that were around in that day, and there were others throughout Asia Minor and, and Italy and all the rest, these were typical, I guess, of all the rest. He said, if you understand what's going on with these seven churches, you'll understand what's going on in all the others. And as a matter of fact, 2,000 years later, you'll understand what's going on in your church and the other churches that you have contact with. So he kind of wants them to evaluate themselves. He said, I'm the one who's qualified to come in and do that. John, you're, uh, you have great wisdom in your, uh, in your old age. So do many of the other apostles have had great wisdom. You've helped to start many of these churches. Paul, we know, had contacted Ephesus. But now I need to come in because I am the Lord. It's one of the things I think we learn in this Revelation passage is there's one of the part of the fixer upper concept is that there is somebody who is in charge. There is somebody who is the Lord. And we as his people learn to submit. There's this line of authority that happens Uh, in our project. We have a couple guys who we've identified, Dan and Craig, who kind of uh, lay, lay out the plan and stage it out for us. And when we want to know what's next, we go to them to find out. And, and the Lord is even better than both of them. So we, we look to him for guidance and direction in our lives, particularly in our spiritual development. So here's what the Lord says when he comes out and talks to them then. He turns around to see where the voice is coming from. And as I turned around, uh, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That's a Old Testament reference to the Messiah. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
So this is a different view of Jesus Christ than we generally talk about and we're used to. From like the Gospels, for example. Different view of Christ than John the Apostle would have experienced. I mean, if you think back just a, a few years before this, he's at that time they had right before the Last Supper, communing, and John is the one who was sitting next to him and just kind of leaned in against him to be close and hear what he was saying. Now he's falling down on his face in the presence of this one who is just glorious and majestic. So the question is, which one is really Jesus? Is it that one that was compassionate and caring and down to earth? Or is he this one who's majestic and exalted and glorious? Is he forgiving? The one who grants second chances to sinners who have come back? Or is he judging and disciplining like this one who has a sharp sword going out of his mouth? Well, the answer is yes. He's, he's all of those. He still is as loving and as caring, and I guess we could say as down to earth as he was when he walked among us in the, and we see him in the Gospels, but he's also majestic and glorious. He calls us to be forgiven and to have that second chance to live for him. And yet he's also judging and disciplining. He wants to make sure that his people are holy and that we're being reshaped into his image. So John has this stunning appearance of this one who is the Lord. This is the expert. This is the one who's going to come and change our lives. By the way, I don't know all of you. I, just, I met maybe a half a dozen new people this morning, and I guess I didn't catch everybody. Um, I wrote your names down, and I'll pray for you later, because I'm not as good as I used to be at remembering. So I remember Jeff and Susan and Dustin and... Uh, Mackenzie and some of the others. So I will pray for you later because I wrote your name down just so I wouldn't forget. But I don't know where you guys are all spiritually. In fact, it's possible that you've been coming to Crossroads the whole year that I've been here and you're in the building and singing the songs, but you've never made that commitment. You've never come to know Jesus Christ who is the one who will forgive and give you that second chance to live for him. You've never known that one who is... Uh, caring and compassionate, who wants to meet your needs spiritually and in other ways and bring you back to him. Pastor Mike was talking earlier about broken lives, broken marriages, struggling careers, whatever it is that you're facing. He wants to take that and mend that and reshape it into his image. He wants to forgive you if you'll come to him through faith. And, and if you need to do that, that's where this begins for you. You need to know that one. But I want you to know before you trust him, He's also the great and glorious and majestic King of Kings. And he wants to reign and rule in your lives as Lord. He's on his face before this one, and Jesus comes over, places his right hand on John and says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of sin and Hades. He then goes on to give seven letters to seven churches. To these seven churches, he first of all introduces himself. This is, what, this is what you need to be reminded about who I am. We do that sometimes when we meet somebody. We identify ourselves in a way that they'll understand. So I might, say, I might just say to you, hi, my name's Jim. I live in the area. I've been coming to Crossroads for a year. Or I may say, I'm Pastor Jim. I'm part of the staff here. Or I may say, I'm Poppy. That's one of my favorite ones. 
And if any of you are watching out there in Facebook land, hi. <laughs> Be here next week. Okay. So I would introduce myself in a way that you would relate to, and Jesus does that in each case. He commends their strengths, but rebukes when it's necessary for their weaknesses and their waywardness. Then he challenges them to correct what's wrong and gives them warning about what will happen if they don't and encouragement about what will happen in recovery if they do. So he takes these seven churches and he does it. So we don't have the time to go through all seven except really quickly. The first one he talks to is Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found out when they're false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. But I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church at Ephesus. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So if you're you're a church like Ephesus, here's the bottom line here. We're busy, we're working for the Lord, but no real love for him. We've kind of fallen out of love with him somehow. We've got programs, but no passion. Great stats, numbers of people who came and offerings and everything else, but somehow we forgot why we were really serving. We're doing ministry, but drift away from a heartfelt devotion to Christ. So he said, that's where Ephesus is. Ephesus, I'm going to come to you and tell you this is what you need to work on. This is what you need to fix. This is what you need to deal with. And to each of the churches in turn, he does the same thing. Smyrna, you're a poor and struggling people. You're suffering much, but you've been doing it faithfully. I don't have anything to criticize you for, but just to warn you, don't be discouraged and don't give in to compromising. Pergamum, I notice that you seem to be able to confess me as Savior while living in sin at the same time. Beware of wayward leaders in your church. Thyatira, walk hard, work harder than ever, but you're just unruly and lacking discipline. Sardis, you have a reputation, but without life. Your best days are behind you. It's almost like you're ready to die, but renewed life is still possible. Philadelphia, you are good. You've been taking the gospel near and far. Christ is honored and obeyed in your church. Just watch out because Satan will want to attack a church that's living like you. And Oh, I'm sorry, I missed, uh, what, how do I go back? Ah, okay, there we are. Laodicea, the last one he mentions. You're like lukewarm. That's like almost like the hardest thing somebody could say about you, you know? Like, like on the way out, if I say, hey, what did you think of the message? And you went, eh. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's kind of, you know. I'd rather you said, I loved it. I hated it. It was stupid, but eh, that's nothing. That's, that's where Laodicea is. Big budget, little blessing. Christ longs to come in to fellowship and restore them. So he goes through them one at a time. And if we apply the fixer-upper perspective that we've been talking about, we could say that Jesus Christ is the master planner for these churches. He comes in, he evaluates them as only he can do, and he says, here's what you need to work on. Here's what you need to do. Here's your strengths. Here's your struggles. You're working on it. One of the things I like about that concept is that 
Really, only Jesus is the one who can do that. I mean, I think your church leaders, our church leaders, are responsible to help to that to a point. We need to be coming before the Lord and say, Lord, you know who we are here at Crossroads. You know us better than we know ourselves. Please, we open our hearts to you. Please evaluate us. Where are the areas in ministry where we're doing well? What are the areas we need to work on? Because only he can really do that. And, and your leaders need to prompt that and talk with you about it and talk with him about it before him in prayer. And just evaluate where are we because we want him to plan what happens from here on. Fixing up the building is just a part of it. That's just a thing. What we want him to do is really work on our hearts. And if churches need to be examined by the master planner, so do individual believers. So we need to let our master planner take a look at our lives, at your life, and then encourage or correct as he sees fit. And you might say, well, these churches got a letter. I never got a letter from the Lord. Yes, you did. It's right here. It's a little bit longer than their letter, but it's good stuff. That's why we need to be in the Word. Here in service, day by day, as you read God's Word and your Bible studies and study groups, so whatever you do, however you take the Word in, and some of you listen to it uh, on your devices or in the car, wherever it is, take it in the Word and letting God speak to you by His Spirit on what needs work. Because only He's the one who can do that. He's the one who can sort these things out. He's the only one who can come and say, Jim, you're working harder than ever. But you never come and talk to him anymore. I feel like we've fallen out of love. Or you've fallen out of love with me. He's the only one who can know my heart and come and talk to me about that. He's the only one who can come and say, man, you're struggling, you're suffering. I know all about it. I'm at work behind the scenes, even if you don't see it right now. But, but don't give up. Stay the course. He's the only one who knows the circumstances of my life and can come in and do that. And if John, in Revelation, presents Jesus as the master planner, I'd like to give you a little different perspective from Peter, who introduces Jesus as what I just call the master builder. Second Peter, if you're looking for it in your Bibles, is just a couple of short little books before the book of Revelation. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption caused by evil desire. Now you may remember Pastor Mike introduced this uh, sort of description last week of what sanctification is or what we have come to call kind of um, spiritual renovation. God saves us in an instant. And he justifies, declares us righteous. But then, as Pastor Mike said, he is able to slow down in time the, process, the salvation process so that we can participate or cooperate with him in that process. And that's, that's what Peter brings to the table. He wants to explain that and describe that a little more fully. He wants to explain what the process is like. The master planner comes in and sees the big picture. He evaluates our church. He evaluates your life. 
He knows where it needs work, and he's come to say, not only do I know what needs work, but I'm just the one to help you with it. I'm just the one to make the necessary changes. I'm just the one that you need to move forward in your Christian walk. Peter says, here's another consideration. As he's building in our lives, it's sort of a process. For this very reason, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, to your goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and finally, to brotherly kindness, love. So he works through this process of seven kind of characteristics. Now, I'm sure there's a lot more in the Christian life than just these seven things, but these are kind of seven attitudes or perspectives that we need as we grow in a lot of different ways. So I don't know that I have everything identified perfectly, but here's kind of how I look at it. It's kind of like a building process. We're building up, and some of these things come first. One of the first things that happens, I think, after we're, we're saved, after we come to God and ask him to forgive us for Christ's sake, is that he begins to change our lives instantly. Uh, some of you have tremendous stories about how God, when he saved you, uh, took away a, a, a wrong desire or, or a habit that was uh, uh, reckless or defiling you. So, or, or, or something happened in your life uh, th that healed almost immediately, a broken relationship. And those things happened right away. That's God's goodness at work so that we can advertise the changes that God's making. We want to be a good advertisement for what God is doing, and that part begins to change. Along the way, then, we need to develop some moral discernment, or what Peter calls knowledge. I need to get a good sense of what's really right and wrong in God's eyes. How do I live to please him? And I start to get a better idea what that looks like. And then there's this self-control, which I guess has a whole range of issues. It means that, you know, when I want to hit you, I don't, you know, that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> There's at least that basic self-control. But there's something really deeper with self-control is it's kind of a resolve. It's a, a resolve that's deep within us. And as Christians, we resolve to grow over the long haul. That's one of the challenges of the Christian life, is it not to be flash in the pan, but to grow in Christ over the long haul. Perseverance, I think, means that we have staying power, that we're, we're learning that more and more we're learning what God's doing, and we're, and we're going to stay with it. And we're going to continue the changes that have been made. We're going to solidify those as we move yet further ahead. A godliness is a growing understanding in your life that you are dependent on and devoted to Jesus Christ who saved you. Then brotherly kindness comes along where I'm now devoted to you as fellow believers. And I'm now committed to others beyond myself for your spiritual welfare. So these things kind of build. Here again, this is one of those things where I don't know exactly where you are in this process. Um, you may want to share that with me, and we can pray about that together. But the Spirit kind of comes and nudges you. I don't know which one you need work on. I suspect what happens is that we kind of work through the whole seven, and then we kind of go back and begin to strengthen them as we, as we go along. Just Things need to be done in a certain order. We need to have a certain amount of knowledge, a certain amount of discernment before we really develop self-control and that staying power of perseverance. And God works in our hearts to really see us develop. On our project, I've discovered that certain things need to be done first. So it would have been silly to paint things and then come back later and open holes in the wall to install things. So 
Dan and Craig had a better idea. Let's rip up the walls and install stuff where it needs to be first, then we patch, then we paint. Oh, good idea. There's kind of a process going on. It's making sense to me now. God's doing that in your life. One of the exciting things is as we work together, I get to know as I get to know you better what it is that God's doing, what part of the process he's working on, and work with you at it. And you help me work at what God's working on me. One of the things that happens, I think, sometimes, after you've been a Christian for a little while, and you can see changes are starting to happen in your life, then you look at somebody else who, who before that, you thought, oh, they're a fine example of what God's doing in a life. I can see Christ in their life. And all of a sudden, one day, you see them do something that surprises you. And for just a second, you're shocked. Then you're disappointed. I never thought he would have a problem with that. And now you're kind of disillusioned. Don't be. It may be that he is the world's worst hypocrite. That's possible. Probably not. It's probably just that God's working on that area of his life. Maybe it's something that you've already dealt with or didn't have trouble with, but God's working on him. God's working on her. So don't criticize them. Pray for them because the master builder is at work in their life just like he's at work in yours. And together, we grow in the faith. As you begin to read his letter to you, as you read the word and see how it applies to you, um, how is the master planner evaluating your spiritual condition? What are some of the things he's talking with you about? And as you see him at work in your life, what are the changes that you're seeing? I think a lot of times the only way to discover that is to be able to kind of look back on it and see where you are now compared to last year. Um, one of our granddaughters plays softball, and they played a team last week as part of the playoffs, and they had like a, a logo on the back of their jackets and, and warm-up jerseys, uh, and it had their motto, their motto for the year. Every year you get a new motto. The motto this year was, better today than yesterday. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty cool at anything, right? You know, if you're better today than you were yesterday, if you're fielding better, if you're hitting better, if you're running better, if you're playing smarter, then that's good. I think that's almost what happens to us, isn't it, as believers? You know, we look back and we say, yeah, better this year than I was last year. I mean, I, not that I'm going to grade you or score you, but there's that sense of satisfaction that, yes, God is working on me. I can see it. I can see the changes. I can see the differences. He's working on me. What is there in your life that has to change? It may be that the place you need to start, as I mentioned before, um, is with beginning by trusting him. You're not being changed. You're not being shaped into the image of Jesus. He's not transforming your life unless you first trusted in him and become a child of God by faith. Peter goes on in this letter to explain it this way. If you possess these qualities, if God's at work in your life, uh, and, and you're seeing it in increasing measure, more by more. You see it more this year than last. It will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. In other words, you're going to be productive uh, and effective. You'll see a difference in your life and how he's using you to reach others. But if anybody does not notice these things, they are either nearsighted or blind and have forgotten that they have been cleansed from past sins. That's where it began for all of us. 
we came to Jesus, we came to God one day and said, in Jesus' name, for his sake, forgive me of my past sins. I want to see from here on Christ in me. I want others to see it too. Forgive me. Allow me to have that opportunity to move ahead, saved by your grace. Grace means I didn't deserve it. Nothing I can do to earn it. But I believe that you forgave me for Jesus' sake. And that's where it'll begin. I think it's kind of appropriate that this is a uh, communion morning. A morning for those of you who are not familiar with Crossroads. Once a month, typically, usually on the first Sunday of the month, uh, we spend some time remembering what Jesus did. This was something that he did with his disciples right before he went to the cross and told us that we should continue to do it to remind ourselves. So in just a minute, we'll be able to take a little wafer and eat it. That reminds us of his body, which was given for us on the cross. And we'll drink a cup of juice, which will remind us of his blood, which was shed for us. And I think for each of us, as we're in process, as we're reckoning with God's authority in my life, as I'm seeing him as Lord and me as submissive, as I come to him as master planner and master builder, it's important that I start back at the beginning and remember, this is where it began. Jesus died for me. He came down to earth, took on humanity, lived among us a perfect life, and went to the cross, not for his own sins, but to bear the penalty for my sins. And he shed his life's blood on the cross so that I could be forgiven. If you've never made that commitment before, this is where it begins. The Christian life is exciting. You'll never experience anything in your life better than forgiveness and salvation and the work of sanctification as you see him change you. You can't do it on your own. Nobody can else can do it for you. Jesus does it by his spirit. And it begins by trusting Jesus as Savior, by recognizing that he bore your sin and all of its judgment and penalty on the cross, shed his blood so that you could be forgiven of your sin. That's where it begins. And for those of us who have already made that commitment, this is a good opportunity month by month and come back to the place where we know it began so that one day we can be sure along the way that something's really different about us because we see God at work. We know he's changing us. We know he's doing his work. And we become sure and convinced that one day we'll receive a welcome into his glorious kingdom and his eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. As we come to the Lord's table, take a minute. You'll have uh, maybe 90 seconds while everybody's being served. And just take that moment to consider uh, reaffirming your commitment to him. Because of the cross, you have eternal life. And between now and when you actually face him in glory, he's changing you. He's giving you the wonderful opportunity, and me too, to be part of that process. He's made all kinds of promises. He's promised us his power to be at work in him. Let me just pray with you as we get ready for the Lord's table. Lord, I thank you for what you have done, what you are doing. Let me just take a moment here and just ask if there's anybody here who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ and asked to be forgiven for his sake based on what he did. Just take a moment and let me think that through with you. 
kind of simple. You mean it from the heart, but you say, Father, for Jesus' sake, forgive my sin. I believe that Jesus paid for it on the cross. I want his forgiveness. I want you to begin to work in my life to make these things happen. I want Jesus to be my savior, my master planner, and my master builder. And if you've prayed that, and you just kind of glance up at me, I'll know to pray for you some more and talk with you after. Lord, I pray that you continue to work in hearts. Work in our hearts this morning. As we come to the Lord's table and take the cup and the, and the bread, remind us again of where this started and recommit to the process of becoming more like your son. Fix us up. Keep working on us. Don't give up. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray it. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.